Let us pray. By your word, Lord, in your prophets, prophesied many strange and wonderful things to human wit seemingly impossible. Yet at the same time, appointed your infallible truth has and will accomplish and bring them all to pass. Your word is everlasting and true. Heaven and earth will perish rather than one jot promised in your word not be fulfilled. Your word is your will. By this we know what your pleasure is, what we should observe and follow, and what we ought to omit and avoid. In short, your word and your gospel is your power to our salvation, to as many as believe in you by it. Amen. This Lenten season, a look at the five chapters, the five poems that comprise the book of Lamentations. Lamentations 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness, they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was no one to comfort her. Look, Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. 
Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress, the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. This is why I weep. And my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me. No one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbors become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside, the sword bereaves. Inside, there is only death. People have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my distress. They rejoice at what you have done. May you bring the day you have announced so that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my sins. My groans are many and my heart is faint. This is the word of the Lord. I am privileged to be the pastor of a congregation that after a reading like that still says, Thanks be to God. How deserted lies the city. The pagan armies had overrun the city of God. The victory was total and brutal. It wasn't much of a match. Hundreds of thousands against tens of thousands, maybe. The surrender was a non-event. There wasn't much of anyone left to surrender. It was more of a capture and a cleanup than a surrender. Because they had been defending inside a walled city, there could be no retreat. The trapped were doomed. The fighting ended because there was no one left to continue the fight. Only the pagan warriors of Babylonian Empire were standing. The people of God were laying in the streets. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. Jerusalem had fallen. It had fallen hard. No mercy was requested or given. It had fallen far. No hope of restoration would be voiced. A third of the people of surrounding Judah and the once great city had died in battle, if not before, in the long siege of starvation, leading to the final slaughter. A third would be enslaved and marched off to Babylon. They would not return. A third were left to serve their new overlords on the land and in the city, paying taxes and tribute as an impoverished vassal in a wealthy empire. They would never rebel. There simply weren't enough of them. They were done. They were done as an independent nation. Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, they were no more. 
But, but, they were still somewhat there. Well, kind of. Some of them. And they made a move that the Bible considers brilliant. This move. What I just read. So brilliant that it became a unique and precious possession in the Bible. The book of Lamentations. They neither complained nor blamed. That would be common and near irresistible to do that. They did not claim the role of victim. Thoroughly and lastingly defeated though they were. They did not even suggest that some injustice had been committed. Though they were long the people of God and the Babylonians were always the debauched brutes. And they certainly, you just heard it in this long mournful reading, did not underplay the great tragedy. Not its breadth nor its depth. The detail is crushing to hear. The scope hard to imagine. Nor, obviously, were they silent. They did none of those things. They lamented. And they wrote it down. For future generations, should there be any, they voiced no confidence in a future. For all those generations, these 2,500 years since, such is the power of their words. And for all the generations yet to come, the word of God never fading away. And thus for us. Parts of the lament were written in the first person plural, we. The whole of the remainder, small as it is, the remnant voicing its lament, lament together. Their experience had been so catastrophically shared. There's no hint of difference or variation in their voices. Devastation, desolation, death. It's a leveler. Parts of the lament were written in the first person singular, I, the poet who recorded, compiled, and edited these laments into a universally recognized master, masterful piece of literature. With the sole exception of the Psalms of Lament, no other work in this genre, ancient or modern, is held up for comparison. What they had experienced, as horrific as it was, was not unique in human history. That's not what makes it different and unique. Genocide is a recurring horror in human history. The last century began with it, the last century ended with it, and the middle of the century was characterized by it. Their experience was not unique. The testimony to their lament is. It became the standard. This same people, through the centuries, would continue to experience great trials and tribulations and tragedies, pogroms and persecutions, genocides and a holocaust. They would recite these laments every time. Jeremiah and Zechariah record in their books that an annual national holy day to lament the nation's losses was soon established after the sixth century fall of Jerusalem. It would be a day of lament for their loss. It was religiously observed. Centering it, the book of Lamentations would be read aloud in public. Later horrors in their history would be added to the causes of laments. But the laments would always be spoken in these words. And any new laments written would borrow from these. 
500 years later, in 63 BC, Judea was an independent kingdom once again. Small, but it had some sway over neighboring Syria. No king, just a hierarchy of priests with something of an army serving them. A revolt 50 years earlier had, for the most part, kept the Roman Empire at bay. Now, Pompey was the powerful Roman general in the eastern Mediterranean. He invaded rebellious Judea and took Jerusalem without much resistance. It wasn't hard. But he labored to enter the temple that was defended by priests and patriots. On a Sabbath, when the work of war was forbidden to the priests and patriots, the Romans, at last successfully, broke open the gates with battering rams. Pompey himself entered the Holy of Holies. A Jewish poet at the time would write, when the sinner became proud, he struck down the foundation walls with a battering ram, and you did not restrain him. Foreign nations went up to your altar. In pride, they trampled it with their sandals. The words, the cadence, the tone of this and other later laments would echo the poetry of the original five poems. In the days of Jesus, the people would annually gather to publicly lament the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and the more recent fall of 63 B.C. The child Jesus would hear this book of lamentation read in the public squares. Lament is a form of the word of God that gives a sacred dignity to our expressions of irreparable loss. The totality and intimacy of their loss is lamented in these five poems and described with a thoroughness that is at once carefully studied and written and wildly emotionally passionate. This is hard work. Few can do it. It's hard work on top of and at a time of needing all your resources to try to, to, try to help personally, psychological, spiritual, physical, and public, both political and social, merely to survive the catastrophe. Why the extra effort to write it down? Why do this? How can the hard work of composing lament, requiring the hard work of composing oneself against all uncontrolled feelings, be worth the effort? The remnant and the poet, what do they want? This first poem of lament gives us the first answer. They want a witness, a witness to their sufferings, all of their sufferings. Suffering acknowledged by others becomes suffering shared, and thus perhaps, just perhaps, survivable. But these who lament here do not have the eyes or ears of anyone around them. Their grief is multiplied because of it. It's not just the loss that is lamented, but what has accompanied the loss, and that now makes it more burdensome. Accompanying the loss has come abandonment. No one sees our sufferings. No one knows our trouble. Ask Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when all the disciples run away. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. Six times in this poem, on behalf of the survivors, the poet laments. 
Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. No one comes to her. There is no one to help her. No one is near to comfort her. No one to restore her spirit. There is no one to comfort her. And then finally, more personally, most personally, the poet reflects on his laments and laments further. There is no one to comfort me. Laying in the streets, the starved, the slain, and the survivor plead for someone to notice their agony. None give them attention. Like the priests and Levites of Jesus' parable, they, whoever they are, all of them, walk on the other side, willfully ignorant of the suffering of the one laying beside the road. This adds to the torment. Simply acknowledging their suffering would, if not reduce it, at least give them some needed strength to endure their suffering, to survive their surviving. They say so. It's at the heart of their first lament. Hear us. See us. The heart of any of these five poems can be found in the middle two verses of the poem. It's a poem composed in a ring with the first and last verses, one and 22, matching, and then the next verses, two and 21, matching, three and 20, and so on until we get to the middle, 11 and 12. 11. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. 12. Is it nothing to you all you who pass by, look around and see, is there any suffering like our suffering? Look, see, consider, look around. These are not appeals for pity. They're not re appeals for relief or help or even asking for a word of hope. They are laments that no one knows their laments. No one. The Lord first Hardest of all, the one who sees all doesn't see us. The one who watches over Israel isn't watching. We who are the apple of his eye has his eyes elsewhere. We are alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the lament from the cross. The next poems will expand on the complicated presence of God in all this. The poems will strangely comfort them by seeming to further condemn them. But the Lord does not respond to their cry for attention. He does not say, I see your suffering. The Lord is silent. Is he really blind to them? To all the suffering? It's his people. Working the hard work of prayer while wasting away and then hearing no response is itself lamentable and adds to their lament. They lament. Next are those who pass by. All the other possibilities had been eliminated. No point in asking their enemies to commiserate. They gloat. Judah is a notch on Babylon's belt, a minor one at that, Mercy, sympathy, empathy, they never seem to have been within Babylonian possibilities. No point in appealing further to friends. They apparently had been asked to come by and have declined. Friends had become foes. There had been betrayal. They gawk. 
No point in looking for old lovers. They were gone. Assyria and Egypt, descending foreign nations and empires that Israel had wooed and been wooed by, were in this time of Babylonian ascendancy, helpless to help had they wanted to. They didn't want to. The prophets had long advised they were false lovers. They were plain little Judah. Further, to go to them was harlotry, a betrayal of the marriage covenant with the Lord. In this moment, they're simply gone. All that remained to whom to make an appeal was those who passed by, merely passed by. This is desperate. The unknown stranger had become the last best hope for notice. Those who passed by? Not many. Jerusalem is a just destination, high on a hill. It's not in anyone's way to or from anywhere. But perhaps someone, someday, might chance by and see. Surely the sight of our suffering would gain notice. Surely we are not invisible, not ignorable, not unknowable. Surely this great pain is significant. To be near it is to see it, even if just passing by. To see it is to be horrified by it, the hope of every beggar on the street. Because to be horrified by it is to feel it, and then to join in the lament then we would not be alone. It was a false hope. The remnant remained unlamented. The nations took note and mocked, the prophets said. The New Testament teaches that the sufferings of Jesus were not only entering into the sufferings of this world. That's marvelous. Meditate on that this Lenten season. And not only most wonderfully, suffering on behalf of the world. That is the greatest. But it was also entering into the sufferings of ancient Israel. Experiencing the horrors of their history in his own person. Mark, therefore, the gospel writer, a reader of these lamentations describing the crucifixion of Jesus says, those who passed by hurled insults at him. Like little ancient Jerusalem, so too Jerusalem's savior. Well, so much for relying on the kindness of strangers. So much for the help that could have been so helpful. The simple, profound help of having your sufferings seen. On return from Lebanon and Syria, Lois, my wife, my favorite missionary, told us that the most common requests and expressions of gratitude were from the Syrians and the Lebanese, that their troubles were now seen by those who visited. Najla and Joseph Kassab, leaders of the National Evangelical Synod of Syria and Lebanon, say, the value of the contribution of outreach foundation to our ministries is that they show up. Different from other partners, they come to see and to personally hear the struggles of our churches and ministries. They spend time listening and praying with our ministers and elders. Their teams take pictures and write reports visiting our sites so that their observations and emotions can be seen by others. They demonstrate their continuing love 
by caring enough to come to us. Here the pastor, John Calvin, when commenting on this poem of Lamentations. Nothing is more seasonable in grief than to have friends near us, to show us kindness, to be partakers of sorrow, and to apply the consolations which may be had. He knew the absence of those who see our sufferings increases our sufferings. But when no one feels for us and our evils, he says, our sorrow is much more increased. Of all the things the Ukrainian people now ask of us, wasn't this first? See it? Is this not preferred by our friends who have experienced great loss? Not the self-justifying keeping of distance so as not to intrude or to give space. And our too polite silence within their company. But our expressions, however awkward, of seeing their sorrow. I see your suffering. I hear your lament. These are the deeds and words of the good. Indeed, the godly. Indeed, of God. God, the Bible says over and over, saw our suffering and came near. He heard the laments of lowly Israel mourning here. We, the Bible says, are to see, to stop, to stoop, and to stay near the ones suffering. The only person in the stories of Jesus we call good is the Samaritan, the one who did not pass by, and thus becomes for us the biblical definition of neighbor. The Gospels repeatedly tell us Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them. Let this be our first resolve in listening to these laments this Lenten season. We, we will not pass by. We will see, stop, stoop, stay with those who suffer. Let this be what we give up this Lenten season our practiced isolation from the sufferings of the world. Friend or stranger, near or far. Even before we try the hard work of sympathy with those whose sufferings are far removed from our own, who do not have the poet of the book of Lamentations to speak for them, let us listen to these words from the book of Lamentations repeatedly learn to listen to the laments of our contemporaries and resolve to look upon their sufferings. They are asking us to do just that. Look upon us in our sorrow. See our sufferings. Hear our lament. Let it not be said of us by our contemporaries. 
see how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. Let us pray. We confess, we fear it. Our lives are going well enough. They won't go so well if we enter into their sufferings. This requires a courage we do not always have. So Lord, give it to us. This is our prayer this day. Amen.